to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, June 5th, 2009. I'm Elena Rangi. Swine flu, H1N1, influenza pandemic, epidemic. In the past month, you've heard it all. Last week, the New York Academy of Sciences held a timely half-day symposium with eight of the world's top influenza researchers, epidemiologists, and public health figures. The point? To get the science behind H1N1 and hear what local, national, and worldwide authorities are really saying about the latest flu pandemic. This week, I talked to three of the speakers from the conference. One's helped develop a vaccine candidate for H1N1. One's preparing us for the next possible pandemic. And one's a public health authority with the New York City Department of Health. Swine flu breeds in pigs, spreads... Alan, the information is constantly changing. We are no longer referring to it as swine flu. If you're among many who think the swine flu threat was overhyped... are shutting down because of the swine flu outbreak with two more deaths in the city. City Novel influenza A, H1N1. Called swine flu because many of this flu's virus's genes look just like the ones found in a flu that circulates in North American pigs. It's been a little over a month since the H1N1 virus hit Mexico. As of June 2nd, there are 18,965 lab-confirmed cases in 64 countries. 117 people have died. The WHO is expected to move the pandemic alert from stage 5 to stage 6 based on the virus's spread to additional countries. But let's slow down for a second. In the midst of media hype, it's been hard to figure out what the real story of H1N1 is. How is this flu different from the one I got vaccinated against last November? Should schools be closing? Do we need to wear masks on the subway? Or has this whole thing been blown way out of proportion? Doris Bucher is an associate professor at New York Medical College in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology. I asked her what exactly is a flu virus. This is an RNA virus. It's also interesting that its genome is in pieces. It has eight pieces. So this uh, is an important property of the virus. When you have two influenza viruses infecting the same cell, these segments can shift, they can reassort. So this can uh, result in generation of new types of influenza viruses. And this is exactly what happened with H1N1. Swine flu isn't new. In fact, in the past 100 years, this is the third time we've seen it. The first appearance was in 1918, when more than 50 million people died worldwide from what was called the Spanish flu, a deadly subtype of the H1N1 virus. The second showing was in 1976, when another subtype of H1N1 appeared in Fort Dix, New Jersey. It made only several soldiers ill and killed only one, but the panic was nationwide. That brings us to 2009. What makes this year's swine flu different than the other two historical cases boils down to two genes. There are three types of flu viruses, type A, type B, and type C. A and B are the most common types. Only viruses of the same type can reassort to become new strains. That means that an A strain virus and a B strain virus will never reassort to form some sort of killer flu strain. 
As Bucher explains, multiple forms of an influenza A virus reassorted to make a new form of H1N1 we've never seen before. Now this new virus that's come in the scene, this swine uh, influenza virus, it is a type A influenza virus. And it also has very interesting makeup of its genes, of these eight segments. They're derived from four different sources. What Walter Dattle said was, he said when he saw the gene composition for this virus, he said, what a mutt. It's such a hybrid of different reassortment events. It has genes that were originally in uh, avian flu viruses. There's one from a human flu virus. There's the hemagglutinin is, uh, was, is from U.S. swine flu. Then there's another source, the other surface antigen, which is the neuraminidase. It's sort of the minor antigen on the surface. It's important uh, for when the virus replicates that the virus is able to leave the cell in which it multiplied. So that's the neuraminidase antigen. But the neuraminidase and M component came from Eurasian source. It's these Eurasian swine genes that make this H1N1 influenza special. It's not the symptoms of the flu that researchers are most worried about. In fact, H1N1 symptoms have been fairly mild compared to some other strains, and the symptoms have included sore throat, coughing, and a fever. What worries scientists is that they've never seen this combination of genes in a human flu virus before meaning there's no current protection against it, and it's likely to spread. Every year, scientists around the world try and predict which three strains of the flu virus will be most likely to circulate each influenza season. Then, they manufacture and produce a vaccine against all three predicted strains. Kanta Subaru is a senior investigator in the Laboratory of Infectious Diseases at the NIH. As she describes, there are two types of influenza vaccines on the U.S. market. There are two types of vaccines that are licensed for use in the United States. The inactivated vaccine is given as an injection, and that technology has been around for over 50 years. You get injected, um, and you make antibodies to the proteins that you've been injected with. And those vaccines are made by manufacturing a large pool of the virus and inactivating the infectivity so it's no longer infectious. And then it's purified partially to get rid of other proteins. The live attenuated vaccine is newer. It was under development for many years, but it was licensed in 2003. The live attenuate, that term means that the virus is a live virus, so you are actually delivering a virus that will then infect the host. But it's attenuated, and that means that it is it has been altered so that it doesn't replicate to quite as high a degree. It replicates just enough to induce an immune response, but not enough to cause clinical illness. And that's only licensed for for healthy individuals from 2 to 49 years of age. Those are the age ranges in which the studies were done that showed sufficient safety, immunogenicity, and efficacy. So at this point, that's the age group that it's licensed in. The company will probably proceed to extend that. When it comes to H1N1 swine flu, the race to develop a vaccine is on. Bucher's lab has been, well, very busy for the last month. What my lab does, we actually made a vaccine candidate, uh, which we sent off to the CDC last Thursday, and they evaluated it, and it uh, came out very well. So it looks very good. What's always needed for vaccine production is a seed virus to make the millions of doses that you need. So this virus grows very well in eggs, which is how all the flu vaccines are made. And it was made using an approach that was originally developed, proposed by our keynote speaker, Dr. Kilmorn. So we used that approach to make this swine flu seed 
virus. And I understand at least one of the manufacturers, there's only one manufacturer of the inactivated flu vaccine in the U.S., which is Sanofi Pasteur and Swiftwater. And they have already, they got the virus yesterday, and uh, they're proceeding to make what they call a working seed. They also got candidate seed from the uh, CDC, which was made by another approach called reverse genetics, and they're also looking at that one. So in the end, what they're going to do, they'll see uh, which seed virus grows the best in the eggs, the better yields you have, the better the virus grows, the, the fewer eggs you need, the less work, the faster you can, you can get to the producing the vaccine. From what we saw in the lab, the virus that we submitted from New York, this is from New York Medical College, from my lab at New York Medical College, it looks, looks very good. I checked in with Booker yesterday, and she said the CDC is currently evaluating three candidates for a vaccine against H1N1. One or all of them may be used, depending on the manufacturer. Because the vaccine is only against one strain of the flu, production will be faster than normal, and Booker estimates we'll see a swine flu protection by early October. Subaru's lab didn't submit a candidate vaccine for H1N1. That's because they're busy researching what future pandemic flu strains may be. My lab works on the development of vaccines against potential pandemic strains of influenza. Potential pandemic strains. So how do you know what a potential pandemic strain is, might be? So we know only influenza A viruses pose a pandemic threat because they're present in a non-human host. So there's a reservoir out there from which new viruses can be introduced. And there are 16 subtypes of hemagglutinin and nine subtypes of neuraminidase. So we know what the universe of possibilities are, and we know what the reservoir is. So we have to try to prioritize amongst those to see, to try to understand whether all of them pose a pandemic threat or not. And it's difficult to know. The simplest answers are the ones that we know have crossed the species barrier. So, for instance, the ongoing outbreak of H5 infections, there's been a history of H7 and H9 infections. So those are the easy targets. We know that those are viruses that have already caused infections in humans. There are other subtypes. The H2 subtype caused a pandemic in 1957 and circulated in people for 11 years. So the H2 subtype is another obvious one. We're not sure about the others. We're not sure whether they all pose a pandemic threat. But because they circulate in avian species, we consider all of these viruses may represent a pandemic threat, but they're lower on the priority list. One of the coolest things Subaru's lab is doing is trying to speed up the vaccination process. So the study that I was describing was that we've made antibodies and we're trying to see whether instead of the host having to make the antibody response after they've been infected, whether we could just deliver those antibodies and prevent infection. So if somebody becomes infected and they make an antibody response, it takes about two weeks for that to happen. If you give them a vaccine and they have to make antibodies to be protected, that takes about two weeks. What happens if you don't have those two weeks? Is there a place for antibodies if you've been exposed to somebody who's infected or you're a healthcare worker or a family contact, or if you've been infected and you're going to get antiviral drugs, is there any added benefit to giving antibodies as well? Would you clear the infection sooner? And so what we did was do, we did those experiments in mice. So we gave the antibody before we infected the mouse to see if antibody was present, could you then protect the mouse? And we were able to protect mice from infection. Or we looked at it in in terms of treatment. So you infect the mouse and then say, can I now give them antibody and prevent death? The results were that the monoclonal antibodies that we tested were very effective at preventing and treating 
H5N1 infection in mice. And, and other groups have published similar data. As I said, um, two people are using different technologies. And now it really appears that there are some cross-reactive antibodies that work across subtypes. And those would be very valuable because then it's, just, it's not just a market for a given subtype. If you actually have some cross-reactive antibodies, they would work irrespective of which of these subtypes caused an infection. When it comes to pandemics and the H1N1 worries we have right now, developing a vaccine is only one part of the picture. Taking measures to reduce the spread of a virus is something public health departments worldwide are making a top priority. Scott Harper is a physician who works with the New York City Department of Health. Before we even had any cases here, we had started hearing about some cases in California and Texas about a week before. And then we had heard a little bit about activity occurring in Mexico in terms of people with influenza-like illness and, and deaths in young people, but it was really sketchy. But about a week after that, we did hear about what sounded like a potential outbreak in a high school uh, out in Queens and a pretty big outbreak. And so on a Friday afternoon, we pretty quickly mobilized and went out and, and did some swabs and, and got a preliminary diagnosis within the first day or so that it was probably a swine flu outbreak occurring there. And that was our first activity in New York. It may seem like this is the first pandemic to hit the city in a while, but Harper's quick to remind me New York City's got plenty of experience with situations a lot like H1N1. In many ways, outbreaks, especially big outbreaks that demand an emergency response, have a lot of similarities. And so New York especially is very experienced working on those kind of things like the World Trade Center uh, disaster and anthrax and SARS, etc. And so New York has a lot of experience on those generic issues and has planning that's been in place for years, not just in the health department, but multi-agency with police department, fire department, etc. So it helps to have that infrastructure in place and to have, like you say, it's sort of a list in your mind of the important issues. And so the healthcare community is one that, as physicians, we in the health department really focus on pretty intensively um, in terms of making sure we have good bi-directional communication with them about issues that are important for them and for us. But there are also these other issues that come up, like teachers in schools and students in schools and inmates that are in jail and uh, nursing homes and the police uh, who wonder if they should be wearing masks. And all of these different parts of an outbreak response, especially a big one like this, come into play. And so from the get-go, you do have to kind of have a list in your mind about what the important issues are, who the players are, and what your priorities are. A big part of the health department's priority is to monitor the situation so they'll know when even the smallest change happens. For over a month, they've been actively calling hospitals and emergency rooms to get the number of people showing symptoms, what sort of symptoms, and their demographic. In turn, medical centers now report these numbers directly to the health department on a daily basis. Harper's team has been doing the same surveillance on regional laboratories, schools, prisons, and other important population clusters. And the data they're getting back matches up with the data collected from larger organizations like the CDC and the WHO. Most cases of H1N1 show mild symptoms, and the majority of cases are occurring in children aged 5 to 24. Coughing and sore throat are the most common symptoms, followed by headache and runny nose. Unlike other flus, vomiting has only been seen in a little over 25% of all cases. So, should we be worried? Public perception in any of these big public health emergencies is always something to be handled kind of carefully because, in one sense, we don't want there to be panic. We do want there to be concern. I mean, parents who have kids who are sick, 
that's very appropriate for them to be concerned. But we're trying to do as much as we can to prevent the panic. At the same time, you don't want to go too, too far down the road of temporizing or saying that it's not serious because we really think it is serious and that it could potentially cause huge, huge amounts of illness and even death, et cetera. And so balancing those messages between uh, the seriousness and also trying not to keep people from panicking is pretty challenging. And we, we have professional health communicators in the health department who do that sort of thing. And then we also use, obviously, the, the press is foundational to being able to get the right public health messages out. So then what's the right public health message? I think some of the messages are, number one, most of the illness we think is mild. And if somebody doesn't have an underlying high-risk condition that makes them at higher risk for complications from influenza like hospitalization or even death, which would include things like heart disease or lung disease, diabetes, HIV, pregnancy, the extremes of age, those sorts of things, if they don't have that and they get a fever and a cough or a sore throat, they just need to stay home. And they need to stay home for at least 24 hours after their symptoms have gone away so that they are not spreading it to other people who may have high-risk conditions. If people do have high-risk conditions and they get sick and they think it's influenza, then they should seek some medical attention, preferably with their own physician if they have one and not in the emergency department. And they can have their own physician even call in a prescription for uh, Tamiflu or for Relenza. They don't necessarily have to go and be seen. I think another big message is in the schools, we want to make sure that parents know that in the health department and the Department of Education and the mayor's office, et cetera, we're really concerned about schools and we're concerned about the parents and the kids and we want them to know that, number one. And number two, we want them to know that what we're doing is systematic and that when we are looking at school closures that it's something we're trying to use data to drive those decisions so that we don't just make a big decision, close all the schools, and then have a lot of downstream effects that are not beneficial. And while Harper's a doctor, he's also a parent. And he says when it comes down to it, information is the most powerful antibody for swine flu. You know, a lot of us are parents, too. I had mentioned earlier that I've got a nine-year-old who's in school here in New York City. And up until today, she was going to school. She was riding the subway. None of her activities were changed. This morning, fever, cough, bit of a sore throat, headache. She's probably got it. We kept her home from school. And uh, we're not panicking about it. And the key to that is that we've got some knowledge about what's going on so that we're concerned, but um, we're not, we're not going to go crazy on it. Part of the big message is to have the knowledge, to seek out the knowledge, to try to find out what's going on so that you're not panicked, but you're appropriately concerned. For Science in the City, I'm Alana Rangi. Thanks for tuning in this week. Can't get enough of Science in the City? Well, now you can follow us on Twitter. You can find us at www.twitter.com slash city. That's S-C-I and the city. You can also, as usual, find us on Facebook. Science in the City is a non-profit program of the New York Academy of Sciences. That means we need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast series, as well as the rest of the Science in the City program, like our awesome event series and our website. For more information or to support Science in the City today, log on to scienceandthecity.org slash donate. As always, we would love to hear your feedback on any of the programs we run at Science in the City. So send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. See you next week.